Welcome to today's edition of the College Experts Talk podcast, the resource for parents and students navigating the college planning process. Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com and creator of the College Decision Navigator System, talks with world-class college planning experts who openly and honestly share the triumphs and challenges families face every day in helping their children get into and pay for the colleges of their choice. We want you to feel like you're sitting down with our experts and getting their best ideas without paying their considerable consulting fees. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews others about the issues and concerns of selecting colleges, competing for a coveted place in a class, and ultimately paying for the colleges that admit your kids. Hello, it's Felicia Gopal here from College Expert Talk Podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us and welcoming you to today's podcast. One of the biggest issues that students are currently grappling with is how to pay for college. Increasingly, students are using student loans to pay a portion of their college costs. In fact, America's total student loan debt has exceeded $829 billion in government and private student loans, which means that students currently owe more on their student loans than they do on their revolving debt and credit card debt. And I think that's a trend that's accelerating, and it begs the question, is college worth it today? I think if you know me, you know that I believe a college education is definitely worth it, but I believe that it's also important that students will be better served if they understood the job market, their initial earning potential just out of college, as well as the impact on their finances of taking on debt. So today's guest is going to be talking about those issues. She's somebody that I met through an article that she wrote for the Star Ledger called Debt from Student Loans is Crippling a Generation. I reached out to her because of my college planning practice because I often see students who have taken on significant debt. In the article, which I will link to in my show notes, she calls on New Jersey legislators to call for counseling when offering student loans through independent credit counselors, and we'll explore a little bit more about that proposal when we talk to our guests. My special guest is Dr. Deborah Feigart, who is the director of the Stockton Center for Economic and Financial Literacy, which serves the Southern Regional Office and the New Jersey Coalition of Financial Education. She's a professor of education and economics in the School of Education at the Richard Stockton's College of New Jersey, Dr. Feigart received her Ph.D. in economics from the American University in 1986 and a B.A. in economics summa cum laude from Wheaton College in 1981. Deb, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the call. Thank you very much. So I'm going to really just jump into it because Congress did a couple of things recently that changed student loans as we know it, for a new population of students. And one of the things that I talk about in an article that I wrote for another site, and I'll put that in, is it's important to pay attention to what Congress is doing with student loans throughout your career as a student because it keeps changing. So recently, Congress just kept Stafford loans at 3.4 rather than having them jump to 6.8, but they also made some changes for other borrowers. Can you speak to that, Deb? Yes, certainly. I'd be happy to. 
first for undergraduate borrowers who are pursuing their associate's degree or baccalaureate degree, they've limited the time period that you could be eligible for federally subsidized loans. If you want to get an associate's degree, if you go full-time year-round, you can complete it in two years, and the Congress limited your time of study if you're a part-time student to three years. So after three years of attending a community college or a county college in the United States, you are not eligible for any more federal subsidies of your student loans, like a Stafford loan that's subsidized. If you are pursuing your undergraduate baccalaureate degree that you can typically finish full-time year-round in four to five years, the federal government, the Congress, and the president signed legislation to limit your time period for federal subsidies of loans to only six years. So this is an encouragement by the government to try to get students in and out and not pile up their loan debt over a long period of time. Well, I like the idea of having students graduate in a shorter period of time than before, but if you just look at the statistics, as you and I have probably both done, we know that it's taking increasingly longer for many students to graduate because of problems with getting the classes that they need as well as working and all the rest of that. So it's kind of like Congress is encouraging you and beating you with a stick at the same time. It seems that way. I think the problem for students and completion rates rising, how long it takes to complete over the last decade or so, is not so much getting the classes you need, depending, of course, on which particular degree or program of study you're pursuing, but it's really the cost of education that has risen much faster than inflation. So students are spending much more time every week, every day in the paid labor market and also trying to balance their schoolwork with their work in the labor market or their schoolwork with work in the labor market and if they have a family, if they're a non-traditional student and have a family. That's what's the real struggle compared to years and years ago when students had enough financial aid, when the cost of public education from a public school was low enough because of federal support and state support for higher ed that you could actually afford to go to school, finish in four to five years, and incur very little debt. Those days are gone, unfortunately. So what I'm hearing from you was that you're finding that increasingly students are having to work and go to school, and that is one of the reasons why they are staying in school longer. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Hmm. We're not going to solve that particular issue on this particular call, but it's certainly something that I think increasingly parents and students need to consider when they're looking at colleges. I know that uh, one of my concerns is how much debt students are taking out to complete colleges, but I also talked to another person who works in the Midwest, and she's saying that, you know, the $23,000, $24,000 that a lot of the reports are saying that most kids are graduating with is not true in the Midwest. Are you finding that 
when we talk about the excessive amount of debt that students are carrying, is that a private school issue? Is that a public school issue? Is that an East Coast or West Coast issue? Can you shed any light on those particular statistics? Sure, I will talk about that a little bit. Thank you. That is an excellent question. Let me just point out from the previous conversation that we had one other population that is greatly affected by Congress's and the President's recent actions on the student loan compromise that was signed at the very end of June before the July 1st deadline that would have doubled the interest rate for subsidized direct student loans from the government. The population that was left holding the bag here is graduate students because the Congress authorized and passed and the President signed in this compromise a new condition that there will be no, zero, none subsidized loans for graduate students. So the interest rates are going to be higher for going to graduate school. Graduate school per year costs more than undergraduate education. Why? Because it's very, very costly, the training is intensive, the classes are smaller, and you're expected to be able to afford more by training for a higher career. But one of the things that's been going on in the United States is something that I like to call credential creep. Credential creep. And what I'm saying is that more and more entry-level jobs in professions, especially the health professions and specialized jobs in computer sciences and engineering, require a graduate degree in order to get a license to practice in that profession. So you almost have to go to graduate school. In fact, you do have to go to graduate school if you want to practice to be a physical therapist. You actually need a professional doctorate very soon. If you want to be an occupational therapist, if you want to practice speech therapy and audiology. And those students are going to be in school much longer than four years, at least six years, if not seven, for a professional doctorate. So those students will be incurring higher debt because of higher interest rates based upon the recent congressional and presidential action. So you asked about, did you want to say something about that? Well, I did. I mean, certainly, you know, this is a topic that fires me up, Uh, you know. And so, you know, it begs the question. I mean, certainly the professions are requiring those things. But the question that you have to ask yourself is, is this, as you called it, credential creep, something that is really a requirement? And when you look at the actions that Congress and the President just recently signed, it's really going to require that students be in school longer, take out more and more loans. And then in addition to that, it also seems to indicate that for students who are in school longer, make decisions take a little bit longer in order to do that, they may not be covered at all for some of their education. So it just seems that Congress and the president, by signing these laws, weren't really looking at what's happening with the education system. They just put in these rules and regulations that now affect students that perhaps, if in my opinion, hadn't thought through the people that it was affecting. I think that's true, and I think Congress is working within a very larger constraint of today's financial scenario and the federal government debt 
and the fiscal crisis and know they weren't thinking about students, know they weren't thinking about the fact that you cannot touch a patient in the health sciences in physical therapy or occupational therapy without at least a master's degree. You cannot touch someone. You cannot help them. Uh, you cannot do your job without the higher degree. So obviously they weren't thinking about graduate students. However, they were constrained by larger politics and larger economics and the debate that was in the summer of 2010 that went on for a very long time on raising the federal debt ceiling. So what they had to do was trade off lowering the interest rate for subsidized loans for undergraduate students that was set to go up and double from 3.4% to 6.8%. They traded that off, the costs of that, by backing it down to 3.4%, and they had to pay for it somewhere. So where they paid for it, on their estimate, is no subsidized loans for graduate students, and we're going to limit the number of years that folks can take out subsidized loans. Yes, that was a political compromise, and that's the way they had to do it. All right. So let's move on from that particular topic because it perturbs me. Uh, so let's just move on from that particular topic and talk about one of the things that I think is increasingly important and one of the reasons why I do my other series, which is the Career 100, where I interview various different people about what type of education is required, is because I think that one of the things that I would definitely agree in terms of your guest article in the Star-Ledger is the fact that students in general don't necessarily could benefit from counseling in terms of taking on the level of debt that they're considering taking on. Can you speak to the benefit of understanding the career that they're going into as well as perhaps the income that they're going to start with in terms of student loan debt? Sure. One of the things that's required for students after they've filled out the FAFSA form, which is the Federal Free Financial Aid Application form that all students fill out if they want to be considered for financial aid, one of the things that's required if you are even thinking about taking out a loan is a 20 to 30 minute online program created by the U.S. Department of Education it's an online seminar, webinar, where at the end of it you sign your very first promissory note, or IOU. It's called the Master Promissory Note. So what you're getting is 20 minutes of a flurry of information about the definition of unsubsidized loans versus subsidized loans and how you really ought to pay this back. You shouldn't default. If you default, it'll be very costly. A lot of alarms and whistles and bells to say, please, you have to pay these back, which is important. And then at the very end of this short, short program, you sign the promissory note so that you can take out student loan debt. But there is so much missing from that for students and also parents or other adult guardians. What about understanding the whole cost of attendance when you're going to college? Do you know where to go to find the cost, the total cost of attendance 
tuition room board fees for your school? Do you know where to go to look for all possible scholarships that you might be eligible for and grants, both state grants and federal grants? Have you researched all of your work study and loan options to see if you can get the best interest rate? And if you are exhausting your federal subsidized loans before even thinking about a very costly private loan? Do you know how much it's going to cost if you go to school for four years or five years or whatever your time is to graduation? And will you take that cost versus how much aid you're getting, and will you have an estimate of how much total debt you will have on graduation day? And once you've figured that out, will you have an estimate of your monthly payment for all of your loans following graduation day? And finally, are you going to be able to secure a job, an entry-level job, in your new career because you're really proud of your degree so that you can pay off that debt? And those are the kinds of things that financial literacy experts like me and nonprofit credit counselors can do to work with students and their families to try and stitch all of these pieces together so there's no hole, so that there's full information, so students and parents know what they're in for and what they're getting into. You know, as, as a financial planner, this is something that is really important to me because I often will see people who are in their 40s and 50s who are still paying back their student loan debt, as well as I'm also starting to see, you know, a number of students who are graduating with pretty large amounts of student loan debt. I know when I graduated from college, one of my roommates had about $10,000 in student loan debt, and I just thought that that was an outrageous sum. And to know that the median amount of student loan debt for students is more than double that is a little bit worrisome, especially since, as you're stating, some professions are really requiring not only a baccalaureate, but they're also requiring a master's degree in order to even work in the industry. And mm -hmm. if you are graduating with a lot of debt at the baccalaureate level, I'm finding a lot of students aren't even continuing on for a master's degree because they feel like they're completely stifled by the amount of debt that they've secured at the undergraduate level. Absolutely. By the way, the average debt that the class of 2010 graduated with, the latest data available, per student was $25,250. There are 36 million people in the United States out of a population of over 300 million. There's 36 million people right now paying off their student loans, trying to pay off their student loans every month. So 25250 is average. So that obviously means there are some people that are graduating with below average debt, and there are some people that are graduating with four times or even five times that debt. And the most reliable independent source of data on student debt, and it drills down to the level of public school, private school, independent school, and it drills down to the level of the individual school or college or university that you think you want to go to, how much is that typical average student graduating with with debt is 
sorry for it to be a murder mystery, but the answer is the Project on Student Debt. So the best reliable website to get that information, if you're a student looking at a college or university, is projectonstudentdebt.org. It really looks at state-by-state state data, college-by-college college data, public sector versus private school, and obviously there are wide variations, but there are surprises too. I'm going to summarize some of the class of 2010 information. Listeners will be very interested to know that student debt is the highest when a student graduates from a college or university in the Northeast. Why? A lot of private schools. It's also the highest in the Midwest, which is surprising because of the land-grant public, high-quality public education at state schools like Michigan State and University of Illinois and University of Iowa. But it's also highest in the Midwest. It's lowest. Students graduate with the lowest at schools in the West, including the state of California. Now, you also might think, okay, why should my daughter or son, niece or nephew, possibly think about a high-quality, the best private school in the country, for example, an Ivy League university like Brown or Princeton or Yale? We can't possibly afford that school. The student will be in debt for 25 years or more, which is the maximum you can pay off your loans now in 25 years. It used to be 10. So you're really indebted for a long time if you think about graduating in the mid-20s and how long 25 years is. So I was talking about Ivy League universities. Well, you would think, well, the average debt for the class of 2010 is $25,250. My goodness, Ivy League debt has to be at least twice or three times that because of the tuition at Ivy League schools. But one of the things that is a benefit of the best schools in the nation and the schools that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years is endowment. The amount of money that the college can fundraise and put into scholarships and investments in the long run for student scholarships and student aid based upon getting donations from alumni and other folks. So the average debt when you graduated in 2010 from Princeton University, one of the best schools in the country, was only, drumroll, $5,225. Princeton doesn't believe if you can get into Princeton, you should graduate with much debt. The debt for Harvard, $10,102. The debt for one of the best women's colleges in the country, Wellesley, $12,495, half of the national average. So I'm very proud of how we educate students at Stockton, my public sector liberal arts college that has selective graduate programs, but unfortunately, students in our class of 2010 were graduating with almost $31,000 in debt. So this is why students are getting in trouble. They're just piling on debt in order to finish their degree programs. And if you can get into a private school, great. But if it's a private school that doesn't have a lot of money set aside for scholarships, 
It can be rather costly, and if you can get into a high-quality public school like Stockton or the public sector land-grant colleges and universities in the Midwest, for example, great. But the government support, the state support for higher education has been dwindling over the last 20 to 25 years so that the public schools are relying more and more on tuition and fees to pay the bills rather than state support for higher education, as it was very well supported 20, 25, 30, 40 years ago. So students are in a real bind. Yeah, they really are. And so those are some really interesting statistics that you were sharing, and I think they will be very surprising to our listeners because I think that many listeners are under the impression that private schools are out of range for their students. Certainly, we know that increasingly it's harder and harder to get into those schools, but certainly they seem to have an emphasis on having their students get out with less than average amounts of debt, and I think mm-hmm. that that's to be commended. When we advise students or families, you and I, in our profession, young students and their families about where to apply to college, we encourage them to be aspirational and to dream in terms of where they want to apply because the cost of going to college is not the sticker price. It's like buying a car. It is the final cost of attendance after you put down all of your financial aid, your grants, your scholarships, and everything else. That's the total cost because there's Pell Grants, federal Pell Grants, there's state grants. If your expected family contribution is low, there are wonderful scholarships, nationwide scholarships, scholarships from local and civic organizations, scholarships depending upon what career you want to be in or whether you come from a union household, for example. So we advise aspirational students and families, look, apply where you think you can get in, apply to your dream school, have a couple of safety schools, and wait until that financial aid letter comes because that's going to be your net cost of attendance. But the problem comes in when you get so aspirational that you have to go to this school school number A, when school number B gave you a better financial aid package or school number B is half the price of school number A and you're going to graduate with much more loan debt from school number A, that's where your aspirational dreams need to be held in check just a little bit because of the realities of trying to pay back the debt and how much debt you can afford compared to your income, compared to the income you're going to get in that career, your debt-to-income ratio. So we're all for aspirations. We're all for dreams. But at some point, you have to do the math and think about what is the best school that I can go to given how much it's going to cost me over the four or five years and what my total debt load is going to be because there's some common-sense budgeting guidelines that financial experts and financial planners tell us about, and we really need to be careful how much student loan debt we pile on. We have to be aware of those common-sense budgeting guidelines. 
Well, let's talk about those common sense budget guidelines. I know that generally when we're talking about how much debt a person should have, we talk about it should be no more than like 35% of their income. I'm certainly seeing numbers that are higher than that when you consider how much debt students are carrying and the wages that they're getting in their first job. So can you speak to what is an affordable amount of debt for a student to consider taking on when they're starting to look at colleges and thinking aspirationally about the colleges that they're interested in attending? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Think about a young college graduate in their early to mid-20s and what they will be facing in the labor market. They will be all excited about their new profession, getting an entry-level job in their field. So they'll be on an entry-level salary in their field. So if they get average salary statistics from, I can talk about the best website, ONET, available to do research on income and careers, free from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So if you are not going to get the average salary because those people in that career have been in that career 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. A median is a better measure than average when looking at salary. Median is half above, half below. So think of median salary, and then you'll get a little bit below that as an entry-level person. Also, as a young graduate, you're very excited about setting up a new apartment or a new house, either by yourself or with roommates. So here's what financial advisors say to young students and parents about debt and student loans. Ideally, yes. As you said, Felicia, 35% of your gross income should not, no more than that for debt and for your expenses. So rent. You're going to set up that new apartment. The common sense budgeting guidelines suggest no more than 28 to 32% of your net monthly income. That's your take-home pay. That's your gross income minus all of those deductions in your paycheck. Your net monthly income, 28 to 32% rent. So round numbers, 30%. All of your other debt should be no more than 20% of your net monthly income. So what am I talking about? Maybe you have a new car loan or a used car loan because you have to get transportation to work and the clunker you've been taking to school has just broken down. So 20% of your net monthly income has to go to your car loan if you have one, your credit cards because maybe you bought some new used furniture or new new furniture for your new apartment, and your student loan. So that probably means that your student loan payment, according to financial advisors, should not be more than 10% of your net monthly income or 7 to 8% of your gross income for the year. I've also heard a good rule of thumb for students and families in broad strokes, of course, and I think it's pretty reliable, an alternate rule of thumb undergraduate and graduate education, if you're going to go to graduate school, your total student loan debt that you borrow should not be greater than what you expect to earn for income the first year after graduation. So what that means is you need to know what you're going to make 
the first year after graduation. You need to know what you're going to earn. So where do you go and get that data? Where do you find out where the jobs are going to be over the next 10 years while you're going to school and working your way up in the labor market? And the best place to go is a free federal government website called ONET. That's O asterisk N-E-T. That website cobbles together data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Outlook Handbook, the Occupational Outlook Quarterly, the Monthly the Labor Review. It looks at where the careers are going to be, where the jobs are going to be over the next 10 to 20 years. It looks at what salaries are, and not just nationwide. You can drill it down and find out in my state the state where I might want to live, this is what salaries will be for many, many jobs, hundreds and hundreds of jobs in my state. Suppose you don't know what you want to be when you go to college. Most of us started out with majors that were undeclared. That is still statistically true, by the way. You can go into ONET and you can say, you know what, click around. These are the kinds of things that I like to do. These are some things that are interested in. And you can query it, and ONET will generate a bunch of possible careers for you to look into. It tells you what kind of tasks to expect on the job, what a job is like on a daily or weekly basis, what kinds of skills are required for the job. It's very, very detailed. It's a really wonderfully rich data source. So if you go on to ONET, for example, let's say you think you want to become a social worker, you like helping people, your aunt is a social worker, and you've interned in her agency, and you've decided, hey, I think I'd really like to do that. If you go on to ONET, you're going to find out, hey, this is really good that I'm interested in social work, because this is one of the hot jobs over the next 10 to 20 years. Social workers are in good demand. You're going to find out that the entry-level salary of a social worker when you graduate is $35,000. Okay, so what is the monthly gross pay then divided by 12 for social work? Gross pay is $2,917. Well, you can quickly do the math and figure out with some estimates of what your net monthly paycheck is and then you can figure out what your 20% debt-to-income ratio is for all of your debt. And if you graduate in social work, the bottom line is your debt should not be more than $385 a month. And that's, that's including credit. everything. That's including, that's including car credit loans. cards. Yes, $385 a month. Okay, so work that backwards. How much student debt can you afford? You can afford more than 30-some-odd-thousand dollars, which is your annual income your first year out as a social worker. You know, I think that this is really great advice. I think this is what students need to be thinking about in terms of their careers because it really does make an impact on you if you've taken out so much debt that you're feeling like you're crippled. 
I mean, it's bothersome to me and it's worrisome to me that students don't necessarily make the connection between the level of debt that they're considering taking out and their career aspirations and what they're going to do. I've talked a little bit about a student that I met a couple years ago who was looking to become a graphic designer, so went out and got a degree in graphic design, so he got his degree. I was really excited about that, but had taken out some pretty significant debt and unfortunately couldn't find a job as a graphic designer. Hadn't looked at ONET and found out that graphic designers, for the most part, as a business owner, I'm not particularly interested in whether or not my graphic designer has a degree or not. I'm interested in whether my graphic designer can make something pretty for me. Can he make my site pretty? Can he make my brochures pretty? And I wonder today, you know, how he was doing. We were able to make some adjustments to his debt load so that we were able to reduce his debt load. But I know that his mother, who had cancer, had co-signed for some of his loans. And she was starting to be very worried because the job that he was working in was as a retail clerk at a department store. So he wasn't making the type of wages that he thought he was going to be making, and it was really making a significant dent to his finances, and it was feeling like his options were severely limited because of the level of debt. And I think one of the changes that Congress made several years ago was the fact that student loan debt is no longer dischargeable in bankruptcy. And they've also extended the amount of time that student loan debt can be repaid to 25 years. So from going from 10 years to 25 years can have a significant impact on how your life moves forward in terms of some of the choices that you have. And a lot of that could have really perhaps been eliminated by taking advantage of some of the resources that you've shared, you know, a project on student loan debt so that they know at the school I'm considering going, this is kind of the average amount of debt that students have, as well as this is the career that I'm thinking about going in, this is my starting wage, and perhaps I should not consider taking out significantly more than that in terms of my student loan debt. It's hard to make that decision. You know, when Congress stretched out the payment period from 10 to 25 years, they did that in response to the rising levels of debt. They did that in response to increases in default and increases in bankruptcy filings due to student loan debt. So as a result, for those over age 50 today, 17% have student loan debt that they're still trying to pay off. Imagine trying to raise a family and by that time save money and put your own young kids and teenagers through college and still paying off your student loan debt. So about a quarter of the student loan debt today is for individuals under 30, and you would expect that. And about 34% is people aged 30 to 39. But once you get into your 40s, when you're supposed to be raising a family and buying a home and saving for retirement and saving for the education of the next generation, you have uh, 23% of people in their 40s with student loan debt, 12% in their 50s, and 5% in their 60s. So it's really, really hard to get a leg up in this economy with so much debt. So let's talk about your graphic artist. 
because let's say it's a he. He is very, very typical of the college graduate today. Graphics arts is a wonderful degree. And in fact, you don't need a bachelor's degree, as you said, to graduate in graphic arts. But the fact of the matter is that the overwhelming majority of graphic artists hold the baccalaureate or undergraduate degree today. ONET says about 81%. So this young student goes on to ONET and finds out that nationwide the median wage in graphic arts is about $44,000 if you're a graphic designer. That's, that's pretty good. The nationwide median household income is about $50,000. So for an individual, this is pretty good, $44,000. But like a lot of young college graduates in the last few years, if they can even find a job, it's likely to be in the retail sector. The salary you get paid in the retail sector tends to be, for sales positions, very low, no matter what you're selling. If you're selling a big-ticket item like a car or a refrigerator or washing machines or commercial appliances, you might make a little more if it's based on commissions. But average retail salaries are very low, something in the 20s. So here is a young dreamer who wants to be a graphic designer who thought maybe they would get a salary of something in the low 40s when they graduated and be able to afford a total debt load comfortably in maybe in the 30,000 something and they're getting paid maybe 20,000 gross without of all the deductions and then what you take home at the end of the day week and year they're finding it very hard to live they're almost near the poverty line in the United States so that's disappointing. We need the job market to get better so that young students can get jobs in their fields of expertise that they've trained for. We need a growing labor market. We need a lot more support for public sector higher education so that students have more scholarships and less loans. And we need families and students to take advantage of non-biased, free loan, better credit counseling and loan counseling before you sign that first master promissory note. You know, I, I completely agree. You know, I'm a proponent that more information is always to your benefit. And certainly, I think you've given us a lot of great information today on student loan debt as well as ways to consider and perhaps approach the student loan debt that they're considering taking, as well as giving them some great resources on places to go to find information about potential careers. I have another podcast series, which I call The Career 100, where I interview various different professionals who are currently working in the top 100 careers, where I talk to them about, you know, what types of information, what types of education and opportunities are available based on what they've gone through to get to their careers. You'll find a lot of enthusiastic people who talk about 
their particular careers. And in particular, I know that we've got an audiologist that we're going to be interviewing very shortly who will talk about what it's required to be in her chosen profession. And we also had a interview with a person who was a social worker who was a longtime veteran of the social work industry and has made a recent change in her career so that she's taking the skills that she's learned as a social worker and applying them to new fields. And I think that that's one of the things that is true for me. Many of us. Many of us have graduated with degrees in all sorts of different types of fields, and we are no longer working in them or working with our training in various different ways. And I think that's one of the skills and the benefits and one of the reasons why I think a college degree is definitely worth it is it gives you lots of opportunities to take the education and the training that you've mastered in the schooling and apply it in new and inventive different ways from perhaps the way that you were even trained to proceed through your college career. And I think that that is a benefit. So I thank you very, very much for the information that you shared. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience today? If I could sum it up in one sentence, because I know some of the answers were long-winded, my advice to listeners would be the following. Think about the long run. Sometimes it's really difficult to think that far out, 30, 40, 50 years, but you're young, you're smart. Think about the long run. And I think thinking about the long run is a great way to end today's podcast. With us today, we had Deborah Feigart, who was sharing with us about student loans, its impact on your budget, as well as the amount of debt load that you should consider. When you take a look at our show notes, you'll see references, and we'll have links to ONET, as well as the article that brought her to my attention, Debt from Student Loans is Cripping a Generation, as well as we'll have links, of course, to the other podcast series that I do called the Career 100 podcast series. Deborah, would you like to share any contact information if somebody was looking for some additional information? You can reach me at the Stockton Center for Economic and Financial Literacy, and to do that, just go to our website, www.stockton.edu, right slash finlit, that's one word, F-I-N-L-I-T. Lots of resources on that website as well. All right. So Deborah is an expert on financial literacy, so the information will not just be about student loans, but it will really be about educating you and sharing information about the whole issue of financial literacy and giving you some great resources that you can take advantage of and learn a little bit more about so that you can be more financially literate going forward in the future. I thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate the time that you've spent with us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. I want to say thank you again to all of my listeners for joining us today, and I hope you will join me for another installment of the College Expert Talk podcast. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the College Experts Talk podcast. We hope you will join us again for our next podcast where we will continue to legally share college insider information with parents and students from the insiders themselves. 
For more information and to instantly download your free copy of the College Funding Resources Report titled Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Mike Elmore for the College Experts Talk Podcast.